Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellen Becker Investment Group, three-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for Business Ethics and Integrity. The Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sense Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. I'm Karen Ellenbecker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. We are located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive. We're in that great, big, beautiful town bank building. We're also in the village of Whitefish Bay, and we're in the Equitable Bank building, which is right across from Winkies. And we're really excited about the fact that we can service our clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. So we ask you, if you'd like to know more about us, go to ellenbecker.com. We've got pictures of of us and we've got pictures of um, our offices so that you feel comfortable coming in. My guest today is Bill Line and he has been a guest many, many times on the show. Today we are talking about are you prepared to send your kids back to college? Now I know from an emotional standpoint, most of you can't wait for them to go. <laughs> and some of you, if it's the first year, are saying, I can't believe that they're going. But there are some really important things that have to do with estate planning. If you have a student um, who is over 18 who is going off to college, if you have someone who is potentially going to be living off campus and uh, might have a car, might have an apartment, um, also all that great expensive technology that they're hauling around everywhere. So we're going to take some time today and we're going to just talk about the issues that are, um, that parents and kids face as they go off to college. We're also going to be talking about what are some of the roadblocks to people not wanting to do a state plan. And I was talking to a client just the other day who was trying to get his dad in to sign and to actually start, initiate some estate planning. And he said, you know, Karen, I think it is that if he feels if he signs a document and does a will, he's going to (laughs) die. And, you know, I guess it's not if, it's when. But, you know, that's a roadblock that we kind of chuckle about. But I bet there's a lot of you out there who haven't got an estate plan who, if we start to look at what the roadblocks are, they might seem silly, but those emotional ties to not doing something are pretty powerful. We're also going to talk about some of the issues that, children, adult children of parents face as they've been spending time this summer, and they do, of course, with holidays. Um, How do we get our parents to look at their estate planning to um, make sure that the planning is up to date, particularly if you start seeing things that uh, maybe are just a little bit different than what you saw last time. So we're going to take a quick break. My guest today is Attorney Bill Line, and he is located in Glendale, Brookfield, Mequon, and Colorado, works with a lot of our clients, and so I feel very comfortable with him um, talking today about estate planning. We'll give out his number later. You know you can always call EIG, but you can also call him directly. And with that, I'm going to be right back. Most people will say to me, is there 
enough things to talk about? What could you possibly be talking about for 30 years? Well, there's a lot always to talk about, and certainly um, to bring up things more than once so that people can maybe hear it in different ways and from different perspectives. And today my guest is Attorney Bill Line, and he is uh, an attorney that we work with very closely at Ellen Becker Investment Group. He has offices in Glendale, Brookville, Mequon, and Colorado. And Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You've done it, oh my goodness, since um, 2002? We go back a ways. Yeah, long time. And, you know, we've always been talking about estate planning. (laughs) (laughs) It's what we do. And for one thing, it's one of my absolutely favorite subjects because I don't believe any advisor or anyone can really give good advice as to what to do if you don't really know what people want to do with their money and know what their estate plan is. And I feel the same way, and I know you do. No one can really, an attorney can't really good, give good advice to a client if they don't know what their financial situation is. No, it's got to be comprehensive. So it's it's a perfect marriage in heaven, even though it you really, have a wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I love her. <laughs> And she loves you. <laughs> we have a great we have a great marriage here around state <laughs> exactly. uh, state of planning. But you know, I wanted to talk about this is that time of year when the kids are going back to college and a lot of them are going back. I know in um, Arizona they're going back this week. And so it's it's a good time to be focusing on what parents might not know about what they could be doing um, to prepare their children better in the event that something happens unexpectedly. And, of course, we know that, you know, kids get hurt. We know that car accidents, we know a lot of things happen. Also, apartments and damage and maybe done by other people. And, you know, it seems like it's always the most responsible kid that puts their name on the lease. So why don't we start with... Um, kids are what, about 17, 18 when they go off to college, 18. What does that look like and what should, what should parents be preparing for? Sure. Well, I th- you know, when a, when a child turns 18, they're magically an adult legally, whether, whether they behave as adults or not is another question. But I think that leads to needing to plan for them. And, uh, when, when they're adults, I mean, they have many of the same issues that somebody in their forties might have. They have property interests, they've got responsibilities, they've got, they could have health issues, and everything has to be addressed with the proper documents. Normally, I guess a, a child turning 18 probably doesn't need much in the, normally in the way of a trust. Maybe they could have a basic will if they have property, but powers of attorney, I think, are the really key documents that we'd be looking at for a child going to school. Once a once a child is 18, the parent has no custodial rights anymore. Even if they get the bills from college. That's correct. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they might have that responsibility, but but no legal no legal right to act for the child any longer. So, power of attorney for finances, for instance, would allow a parent to act on behalf of a child. They could access bank accounts, um, sign leases for a child. And I think that's that's really important. Mom and dad probably want to start distancing themselves in a way from the liabilities of a child. A child goes off to school and you know, they're they're a good kid, but they could they can get into trouble and that could come with some financial consequences. And I know we're gonna talk about leases for properties, for rental properties at college a, a little bit later. But there, there are many financial issues that can be covered under a financial power of attorney. 
likewise with healthcare documents. Uh, really, really important to have the proper healthcare power of attorney, um, perhaps a HIPAA medical release. We can talk in depth about those a little bit. But uh, a medical power of attorney if a child were hurt and decisions had to be made for the child, you want to have a power, the parent legally empowered to act on their behalf. So, Bill, let's just sort of paint a picture because I know that you and I have both had these situations. So a child is, first of all, it could be away to college. It could be on a spring trip. It could be away at another country on a school exchange. Sure. I mean, it could be any of those situations. And the child is hurt, but they're totally capable of directing a doctor what to do. From a parent's perspective, unless the child is able to do that and gives the right to the medical individuals, um, the parents have no rights. That's correct. And, and especially if we change the scenario and say the child has been hurt and they are unable to make any decisions, again, the parents, well, and, and what do they have to do? I and mean, that's, how does that's that work? the problem. Without, for any adult, without a power of attorney document, if child, let's say your, your student is injured and they're incapacitated and decisions have to be made regarding their care. Without a power of attorney document, generally you'd find yourself having to seek a guardianship of the individual. So you'd have to have the child declared incompetent by a court and from there be appointed their legal guardian to start making decisions for them in keeping with what the court orders. It, guardianships are painful emotional experiences in, in situations, especially with, with kids. I mean, And now you're in a different state, perhaps. Exactly. So it's really, if you have the power of attorney documents, which cost almost nothing to have put in place, uh, technically you can do them yourself. The Department of Health Services has an online health care power of attorney form that can be completed. As long as it's properly witnessed, it's a binding document. It would be honored in other jurisdictions, including not just other states, but other countries. So if you have those documents in place, there's at least always a decision maker available under the under the power of attorney document itself. So I know that we have them here. So if anybody is really looking, you can stop in and pick one up at either our Whitefish Bay or our Pewaukee office. But it sounds like it's very simple. But I remember talking to my mother because it's the same with a husband and wife, and years and years ago, and saying to my mom, you have to sit down and do this power of attorney for health care and finances and the other documents. I said, you can't do anything if dad gets sick. And she said, I've been married to your dad for like 45 years. I can do anything I want. And I said, not legally. <laughs> you, but I mean, she did not believe that yeah. because they were married. And I think the same thing is true. We think about, well, these are our kids. Of course we can make decisions. My son is 46 years old, and he is not married, and I would not be able to make a decision for him either. That's correct. Without that power of attorney. So there's a lot of parents out there who have adult children who are divorced or, um, you know, have just never married, and they don't have a significant other to maybe step in. Um, it would be a brother or a sister or a parent, but without that, no one can act. That's correct. Yeah, it's a common misconception that there's some kind of parental or spousal right to make decisions for somebody who's incapacitated, and it's just not the case. Um, you know, you know when, when somebody else is making decisions for you, what we're saying is 
you're, that right is being taken away from, from you. So in order to, to accomplish having a decision maker in place, courts get involved in guardianships because they're literally taking rights away from the individual. With a power of attorney document, you're naming an agent, you're proactively saying, I want this individual to make decisions for me if I'm unable to do so. So then the courts generally don't get involved in, in the situations where somebody has a valid power of attorney document. What was that a case so many years ago, 20-some years ago? Uh, oh, Terry Schiavo. Terry Schiavo. Yeah. And she was married, didn't have a power of attorney. The husband wanted to disconnect the feeding and all that. Correct. And the parents um, refuted it, and it was a terrible court yeah, case. That went on for a long time. And it was, yes. it was painful to watch from the outside. I can't imagine what it would be like to be within that family. Similarly, uh, I've had many situations where um, elderly clients think, again, oh, I've got the right to make decisions for my spouse. We've been married for 50 years, and spouse maybe has Alzheimer's. And as time goes on, they can't make decisions anymore. And an, an elderly spouse can find themselves having to seek a guardianship for their for their incapacitated spouse. It's a painful thing to go through, and it's it's expensive, and uh, it, it's, it causes a lot of upheaval. Well, particularly, I want to say at that point, because normally the um, elderly person doesn't have the ability to go to the court, so now you've got a child taking off of work to try and accommodate that. And the other thing, Bill, that happens often, too, is where... Um, in your case, there's two elderly. They let's even say they have powers of attorney in place, but they're old, and now the husband has got Alzheimer's, and the wife isn't even in a place that she could make those decisions. Now it's almost important when one of the one of your parents gets sick to look and say, "Is my mom or my dad really in the position now to make those decisions for the remaining spouse?" It might be a good time to put an adult child. Or someone as the primary decision maker. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, first, I would say in documents, uh, you should have good succession laid out. So you'd have a succession of agents named, maybe dad names mom, followed by a child, and then a subsequent child to make healthcare or financial decisions. And there, um, it's just one person. Under healthcare documents, it's correct. In Wisconsin, you have one agent named to act. Under financial documents, you can name co-agents. To the extent you want, you could have committees. I, I don't necessarily advise that, but uh, <laughs> you can have um, numerous decision makers for finances. With healthcare powers of attorney, you can have one serving at a time, but you can lay out succession, and that's what always concerns me about just sending people to um, a form document with the Department of Health Services. Is that it's good to talk them out a little bit, talk out the forms a little bit, and make sure. You're getting things in place. And then as, as people age, I think you want to be looking at who takes over. Um, with students, same, same thing would apply. Maybe you'd name mom followed by dad or vice versa. And, um, but as time goes on, maybe the student, you know, the student gets older and they get into a more serious relationship with somebody. They might bring in that person to act as their agent. Uh, instead of mom or dad, and move mom or dad into a position of successor. You know, Bill, let's make a draw another picture, and it would be that you have an adult child, and they live in another state or your own state, 
and they are in a car accident, and they are injured and unable to um, make decisions or care for themselves. They have a home. They have a mortgage. They have electric bills. They have all of these things that we all normally have, and all of a sudden they're incapacitated and are unable to do any of that. What happens? Well, they're, you know, I, in the most basic setting, powers of attorney are, are key to it. Um, we, all the same rules apply. If, if somebody has a home and they have a, they have a bank account, checking account, a depository account of some other kind, and taxes and upkeep have to be paid on the property, it's great to have an agent named to be able to access funds to, to pay for things that need to be done around the house to pay for their care, to, um, you know, for any financial issue that arises uh, with health care issues as well. You want somebody to be able to uh, make decisions related to admission to nursing homes or convalescent care to make life-ending decisions. To keep uh, your life going when you can't. Or to, exactly, exactly. So I know that I've heard this um, Oh, that's the last person I put on my power of attorney for finances. And I remember saying to my sister, I put you down as my power of attorney for health care. And she said, take me off. I never want to make that decision. And I looked at her and said, I thought you'd love to pull my plug, thinking (laughs) it was funny. But she was, no, I don't want to do that. So um, it's important to talk to someone and the person you name. But the power of attorney for finances is a completely different document, and it it's a very powerful document. It allows people to get into your most private things, your bank accounts, your things, but, but your life has to go on. What if somebody doesn't have someone that they trust that they can name? Because it is a document of trust. Yeah, it's very important to have somebody serving that capacity that has financial wherewithal, that is very trustworthy. If you don't have that person, there are professional trust companies that will serve in that capacity. So there are independent trust companies that will take on the responsibility of serving as agent under a financial power of attorney. They, they will not do that under a under health care power of attorney. There are options for that as well, though. Um, there are declarations to physicians that you can put in place if you don't have somebody you want to name to be empowered to make your decisions. You can lay out your decisions as to health care, um, and you're, you're really then turning that decision-making power over to your physicians to really implement your wishes as stated within the, the declaration to physicians, sometimes called a living will. So, you know, we talked about we're going to take a break real quick, and we said that some of the things we were going to talk about were the hurdles that people have to overcome, and that is a real hurdle for people is – Uh, Who would I name? I don't have anyone to name. Or I'm all alone. My spouse has passed away, and I'm an only child, or I never had children. Um, Who do I name? And so there are resources to do that. All you have to do is really um, find an attorney, and certainly um, Bill is an excellent attorney to work with, and sit down and be very open-minded, which takes trust, and um, and be able to express those concerns because once once you and I sit down and we hear the concerns, we have so many different options and solutions for that. And the one thing about these documents, all of the documents, is they're changeable. That's exactly right. And we we've, we've seen 
an awful lot. Yes. <laughs> we have a lot of solutions <laughs> for most problems. Yes. Um, my guest today is Bill Line. He is located at 500 West Silver Spring Drive. He's also got an office in Brookfield, Mequon, and Colorado for all of those clients of ours that are out west. Um, my goal is to get out there and do some fly fishing, actually. <laughs> Love that. And um, so we'll take a break, and when we come back, let's look at some of the other issues that adult children or even older adults are facing as they're aging and as they see their um, spouse's age. With that, we'll be right back. here next Sunday. It will be on. And in addition to that, you can always go to ellenbecker.com. And once you open up our webpage, you'll see radio shows and you can click on Money Sense and it will be there and it will be easy for you to share if you'd like to do that. This is, I think, one of the most fun shows that I do, but I also think that it is one of the most important shows that we do because typically when something goes wrong, it goes really wrong <laughs> because you can't make the decision. And documents are done in, in a pro, not right. They're not done the way they want them. So, you know, looking at some of these um, issues, I sat with a client today who stands to inherit quite a bit of money, and the mother's 95 years old. And I said, has your mom done any planning? And she said she doesn't want to talk about it. I know that my dad had a lot. My mom doesn't spend. And I said, well, we really want to, this is a a one-time only opportunity to protect you. And I'm talking about our credit protection trust that we use. But so often children, here's another one of those hurdles. Adult children, and it's my generation, we've been taught, you don't ask your parents about how much money they have. You don't ask them about their mortgage. You don't, you know, the only thing I ever knew when I was a kid growing up was, what do you think, money grows on trees? Think I own the electric company? You know, (laughs) that was about as much financial education as I got. But the truth of it is, is that there are ways. And many times we do family meetings and we don't have to talk about how much money people have, but we have to talk about, we have the opportunity to discuss some of the things to put in place as people age. And as, you know, my mother just passed away this January 1 at 90. And, you know, it was it was a really hard thing to go through, but my mom did have everything in place. And it was still a hard thing to go to because there was four of us and every one of us views things differently. But I think about as parents are... Um, are aging and all of a sudden um, an adult child that's there sees that maybe mom is misplacing things or the refrigerator's left open or there's a lot of old food in there or mom's not quite as tidy as she used to be. We start seeing things and, you know, we, we see it and we think, well, maybe we need to bring in someone to do an assessment or maybe we should stop more often. But really that's also a red flag to having that question when your parents are competent to do it about what they want and what will protect them and actually what will protect you. Yeah, that's, I I think it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about college kids at the, in the first segment today, and then we're talking about older people now. And I, I think a lot of the issues are 
really the same. In For college kids, you don't really think much about death or disability and because it's unlikely, but it does happen. And when people are older, a lot of times they don't want to think about death or disability, and it's going to happen. It's highly likely. So I think there are a lot of similarities. Um, when When we're planning for mom and dad as they get older, sometimes we're, we start to find ourselves in a position of being almost like parents to them. So it's really key to have your plan laid out prior to the time you're losing capacity. So if mom and dad are older but still have their, their capacity, they're still pretty sharp, if they don't have documents in place from powers of attorney to revocable living trusts, wills, all the, all the key documents in a comprehensive estate plan, it's, it's time to do it. Um, putting off what is inevitable uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, it might sound mercenary, you know, it's my business, but in, in my experience, it's much less expensive, time-consuming, anxiety-causing to do the planning while, while everything's good rather than waiting till the wheels have come off. Then when you're scrambling to put things in place, usually the result isn't quite as good as it would be otherwise. You know, we talked about hurdles, and I, I shared with you my mother and dad, which now is probably 20 or 30 years ago. Well, it's probably somewhere in that area when I got involved in this in this industry. And I remember telling my parents at that same time that they needed to really look at doing some planning, and I couldn't get them to do it, and I couldn't get them to do it. And finally, one day, my dad looked at me, and he said, well, Kenny should be doing this. He's the oldest. He's the he's the only and the oldest. You know, our son and it, the boy is the one that should be in charge. And I said, I don't have to be in charge. I said, I just want you to do the documents. You can name Ken, and I said, you can name both of us. And my brother didn't have any interest in doing it, but it was my dad's feeling that the oldest son or the son is the one that should be taking charge and doing things. And so that was just a legacy passed on from his family that made no sense to me. But I bet I couldn't get my parents for three or four years to even think about it until I figured that out. And then brought my brother in, and we sat down, and we talked about it. <laughs> you know, and my brother said, I don't want to do this, Dad. And yeah. But, you know, it was, it was really um, – there are all kinds of reasons, you know. Someone thinks if they sign the document, it might mean that they die. Um, my dad thinking that an oldest son – um, sometimes there's an issue with kids in a family and they know that there's going to be a disruption and they just figure, well, let them deal with it when I'm dead. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people don't recognize all the beautiful things that you can accomplish with an estate planning document. And they're very black and white. I mean, what you say is what happens. And, um, and so you can lay out things in a beautiful way. And a lot of people fight over stuff. Yeah, that's true. You know, pr- things with sentimental, sentimental value a lot of times cause problems for people. Tan- you know, tangible personal items, um, watches and jewelry uh, can cause issues. Money is pretty cut and dried normally. Mm-hmm. You know, three kids, age get a third normally. I mean, sometimes... <laughs> Things vary if, if um, you know, if 
family has debts, a business, if or if there's a lot, if someone's borrowed more money. And oh, they absolutely, want that. yeah. If a, if a child's borrowed money, you know, there there are things we have to plan around, and and that that's what we do. I, you know, we we meet with with clients, and hopefully, if they're willing, um, if we can involve the family as we do here at your family office involve family members who are, are going to be involved in the estate eventually so that there are no surprises. Make sure that the people you're naming to be your successor trustee or your agent under powers of attorney uh, actually want the job and are willing to do it. Um, I, I've, t I've told many people, be careful what you wish for in being named the trustee uh, or personal representative. It's, it's a lot of work. And, and there, there are legal obligations that come with it. And so um, just assigning it to the oldest son, that may be the best possible choice in the family. And, and the oldest son wants to do it, and no one else is going to be bothered by it. But the oldest son might be the worst option within the family. So that, that older generational be, it view It could be changed. because of his own um, not being responsible to do it, but he could be out of state. Absolutely. There's and it makes no sense. Logistical issues involved with it. Um, but, but we can plan for things. The, the child out of state might be the right person to be the trustee of a trust. But maybe we need to name a child who's local to act as an agent to the trustee to be able to do things here in this geographic area where mom and dad reside. So there, there, there's a lot that goes into planning. It's not just throwing names into a document and dividing things up equally. And there's, there's a more thought that goes into it and more discussion than, than simply that. You know, um, Bill, when I was at the M&I Bank in the personal trust department and working with families, that's where I really fell in love with this whole process of what we do at EIG. I could only take a new client if they had a million dollars or more. And I remember when I started my own company and I said, but why should only people with a million dollars be offered these types of services? Why shouldn't everybody have good estate planning, good tax planning, good financial planning, good insurance planning, and, and emotional planning? Because money is a very emotional issue. And that was the reason I started EIG, because I didn't believe that people should be disqualified because they didn't have enough money. I wanted my parents to have estate planning. They didn't have a lot of money. And I wanted them to have those same types of services. And that is a really important piece, yet there's so many people out there that believe that they shouldn't have a trust because it's all based on how much money they have. And I always say estate planning isn't based on money. It's based on how easy and comfortable you want to leave it for your beneficiaries. Absolutely. There are, um, there's tax planning around money, maybe, but not the document planning traditionally. Right. You know, a lot of times we'll see things like um, mom and dad will come in and reluctantly to talk about estate planning. They say, well, we have it pretty much figured out. Um, we're going to we're going to gift uh, our house to the kids now and we're going to we're going to transfer our bank accounts to them now so that when we die, there won't be probate court. We don't have to do an estate plan. We'll we'll have laid it out for them. And in theory, that works. However, in um, reality, in reality, <laughs> it's it's not that simple because there are issues that come with lifetime transfers 
there can be detrimental income tax results for your beneficiaries in, um, in making lifetime transfers as opposed to transferring property at death, and they can be significant. So, Or if there's a divorce or if there's an accident, those assets could be um, used, I mean, or absolutely. taken. Absolutely, yeah. So, we, we, you know, in, in estate planning, we're trying to protect the assets for mom and dad during lifetime and ultimately transfer the assets to the beneficiaries in the most tax-efficient way possible. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk about my most favorite, favorite document in estate planning, and that is the Lifetime Credit Protection Trust. And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellen Becker. My guest today is Bill Line, and as I said earlier, he has three offices in Glendale, Brookfield, Mequon, and a fourth one in Colorado. If you would like to give him a phone call, you can do it at 414-847-6290. I know you're car driving, so all I got to do is call EIG, and I've definitely got his number. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, I, I think. <laughs> Anyways, we, um, you know... We're going to try and get to the leases. Um, if we don't get to that uh, in this last segment, then please just give us a call at 262-691-3200. We can hook you up with Bill, or we could give you some information on that as well. But we've got to go to my favorite document. I'm sorry. Got to cover the favorite document. And the reason how this all started for me, which is probably over 10 years, was I was teaching a class at Freighter. And um, it was on individuals who had um, transplants. And I finished the whole class talking about finances. And a lot of these individuals were, you know, potentially worried about bankruptcy. Um, the insurance was going to run out at a certain point, And they were wondering what they could do. And I was literally almost walking out of the room. And I said, oh, by the way, are any of you guys going to inherit money? Well, I mean, like six hands went up. I And, and I said, okay, we got to talk some more. And it was, the fact was that if they went into a bankruptcy or if something like that happened and they inherited money, that money would have been captured back back away from them. And what these parents would typically want is that money to be saved for them so that if they had more health issues, they would have access to that. And I remember coming back and talking to a couple attorneys about that and spent much time talking to you about that, Bill. And said, well, again, if we can protect them, why can't I protect my kids? <laughs> you know, if something happens, why can't I protect my kids? Same thing as the M&I Bank. You know, why can't I take care of everybody as far as estate plan? So, Bill, would you talk a little bit about my favorite document, which is the um, Credit Protection Trust, and how that works, and particularly if we're looking at um, people who have had their estate planning documents done over six, seven, eight, ten years, because a lot of people didn't do it then, and um, how impactful that can be. Sure. Um, you know, t to put it in context a little bit, traditionally in state planning, you would see distributions to beneficiaries, to your kids or grandkids, um, outright in some form. Um, you know, probably 75% of plans would say that a child will receive their share of the estate outright. Maybe it would be delayed. Maybe they'd receive half of their distribution at the age of 25 and the balance at 30. That was very, very typical. Um, 
a few years in 2014, Wisconsin enacted a new trust code. It's called the Uniform Trust Code. Um, I won't get too uh, into details on that, but the Uniform Trust Code allows us to do some things that are a little more creative um, for for your beneficiaries. The Credit Protection Trust is a trust that we draft within a revocable living trust. So mom and dad establish their trust. A lot of times the the motivation for it will be to avoid probate court involvement in their estates. And then we talk to the client about how they want assets distributed. They could still say we want assets distributed outright to children, but we can also offer them the option to leave the assets to the beneficiary in an ongoing creditor protection trust. And that that trust is a trust that can go on really indefinitely. It can go on in perpetuity for your child's life, grandchildren, and so on down the line. But if you think about it as a lifetime trust for your children, uh, it's an easy way to, to contemplate it. And the creditor protection trust would provide for distributions to the child as beneficiary for their health, education, maintenance, and support. And um, generally, they would receive income from the trust and principal is needed to maintain them during their lifetime. The the great benefit to this kind of trust is that the assets in the trust are not attachable by the child's creditors. So if a child were to be sued, go bankrupt, be involved in a divorce, the assets in the trust would not be their property, technically. Distributions would become their property, but the the principal remaining in the trust would be generally protected under statute from the claims of creditors. So my trust would read for my three kids, Karen Ellen Becker, trust dated for the benefit of Julie, John, or Jeff. Correct. And then that trust can go on for their lifetime. The the great the great thing about the Uniform Trust Code is that we can we can design the trust in such a way that a child can act as their own co-trustee or sole trustee and still have creditor protections. So as long as the child honors the terms of the trust and meets the requirements of the law, then they have creditor protections, but they're not, there isn't the expense necessarily of an ongoing corporate trustee or some other third party involved um, in the, in the trusteeship of the trust. So there's a lot of flexibility in the credit protection trust uh, for the beneficiaries, yet providing a lot of protections. One of the things that I'll say to clients is that there's two ways you can pass um, pass down uh, money or what it to your children. It's either in your own Social Security number or a tax ID number. If it's going in their own Social Security number, there's no credit protection. If it goes in a tax ID number, there's where you give, get the protection because it's really not their assets. Yeah, that's describing the fact that the trust is a legal entity. It has its own tax ID number called an employer identification number, um, and that that signifies that it's a separate legal entity. It's not, it's not the child. It's a really good indicator that it's something other than the child's asset. And in Wisconsin, as marital property law, and maybe it's consistent, um, inherited property is not considered marital property, but you've got to keep it separate, which is when you said if they adhere to the law, you can't commingle. Right, that's exactly right. Take money out, don't put money in. Yeah, Wisconsin has a law called the Marital Property Act, and the law essentially says that property of spouses is presumed to be marital. And it means that each spouse is presumed to own 50% 
of all of the assets in the marriage. And then there are exceptions to that rule. Um, one is property you receive as a gift, whether it's from somebody during their lifetime or at their death. A gift is considered individual property as an exception to that general presumption of marital property. The problem with that is is that you're really rebutting that presumption. You have to show that the property is individual. And a lot of times what we'll see is a child receives assets from parents or grandparents and maybe they put some of it into the house that they buy with their spouse or they put it in a bank account in a joint name with a spouse and then the marriage doesn't work out. And now you're really trying to trace back how you contributed and that it was individual property as a gift from mom or dad. And it just gets very complicated. The trust segregates it. So it's a little bit like you're building in a a prenuptial agreement for your child and isolating those assets and segregating them from the marital pot of assets. So two, um, I know we're going to run out of time, two um, things I want I want to mention. I, I love to give stories. So a story might be that um, just what you said, somebody inherits money and hopefully it goes into the Credit Protection Trust and they get married down the road and they want to buy a house and they take out 100000 or 50000 out of their trust and they go and purchase a house and maybe 10 or 15 years later there's a divorce and what we would recommend is take the 100000 out but let the 100000 be a note to the trust. So now 10 years later when they sell the house, the note gets paid back, the 100000 and all that's on the table is the appreciation and what they've paid in the mortgage. That's correct. To be split. And and that's a great thing. And the other thing is, um, Bill, talk a little oh, – we have a minute. you got to do this fast. Oh, talk try. about um, the beneficiaries on retirement accounts now. Big, big, big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, inherited retirement accounts – used to have creditor protections. They were protected from um, claims in bankruptcy court. And recently, again in 2014, there's a big Supreme Court case that eliminated creditor protections for inherited IRAs. We can bring back creditor protections under the guise of a trust now for those inherited So a spouse is protected, but if you're just one person, or like me, I'm not married, my money goes to my kids. It's not protected. Right. We thought it was. A spouse is not. protected if they take the account as a rollover. Yes. But not if they take it as an inherited IRA. Nobody has creditor protections for an inherited IRA. Wow. Think about that. Most people's major investments are tied up in an IRA. They split them between their kids, and there's no protection. But if they do it and they name as a beneficiary, and don't just do this. You have to have legal documents to do it. But you, like I, my, for my three kids, it says um, Julie Ellenbecker, uh, Karen Ellenbecker Trust for the benefit of Julie Ellenbecker. So when I die, that goes into another account with the credit protection. Slack. I love it. One of my favorite. Okay, she's saying I got to wind it up this hard on my favorite show. <laughs> and so, I, Bill, thanks a lot. Thank you. And again, um, if you need Bill's information, just call our office. And as always, I hope that I've made a difference in your personal and financial well being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen. Have a great weekend. Bye.